Hello, Charles Corrin here. And Esther. Uh, something new for you today. You may be wondering what this is that's pinged into your podcast box. Uh, what it is, is an episode of Stories of Our Times, which is a new podcast from The Times by Manveen Rana. Uh, it comes out at the beginning of every day. It focuses on one story. Uh, they talk to journalists at The Times. Uh, it's a bit more serious than this one. Fewer jokes, probably more information. I know Esther's a fan. Yes, I'm a fan. I've listened to two episodes and they've both been really interesting and informative. And also feature the voices of... Times correspondent, so I've always wondered what they sounded like. Like, for example, Tom Whipple. I can hardly wait to find out what Whipple sounds like. In fact, I know, because I think I used to work in the office with him. Uh, if you like it, subscribe and rate it. One of the side effects of the coronavirus outbreak has been a huge leap in stress levels. The World Health Organization has even blamed the news for causing feelings of anxiety. Sorry about that. Panic attack, for instance, is the equivalent of hanging on to a cliff by your fingers. That's what it feels like. Today, we talk to the writer and journalist John Ronson, who's currently self-isolating at his home in upstate New York. He has a different take on anxiety. My theory is that we rehearse catastrophic what-if situations in our heads so often when a real crisis happens, we're quite good at it. Could there be some advantages of always preparing for the worst? Suddenly, being prepared for catastrophe is suddenly heroic. Yeah, I think it feels like finally us anxiety sufferers have a Darwinian advantage. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, The Virus, Part 3, Anxiety in the Age of Coronavirus. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello. Hi, John. Hello. Hello. Hi, it's Manveen. I'm just going to put Ben on for a quick chat about the recording. Hi, John. Can you hear me? Hi, Ben. Hi, yeah. Um, with the phone, I'm sure you've done this a hundred times, but if you just sort of hold it, uh, I don't know, six inches away from your face. Sure. Ben, I completely respect the instruction, but you're right. I've done this about 10,000 times. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, thought you, I thought you would have done, John. Right. No, it's always worth double checking. Thanks okay. very much. I will pass it back to Manveen and um, we'll crack on. I have anxiety, I suppose you could say it's a disorder, 
and I've had it for decades. John Ronson confronts all sorts of difficult issues in his writing. Psychopaths, public shaming on Twitter, extremists and the porn industry. He also writes about his experience of living with anxiety. Anxiety is a funny thing, like, you know, it, it affects your life in unexpected ways and then doesn't impact your life at all in ways that you think it might. So, for instance, I'll go off on tour, I do speaking tours and I'll talk on stage and it doesn't bother me at all. But small things can cause John to worry. Two days ago, I'd been planning to repot this cactus, like, for ages. It was really badly potted, so I repotted it yesterday and I clearly didn't do it as well as I should have done because some sap emerged from the cactus, which just looked like the cactus, you know, bleeding or crying. So for the first time in days, that's why I got an anxiety attack, because some sap came out of my cactus. I was feeling sort of, you know, upset and panicky and anxious that I'd screwed up the repotting. I can tell you that that was two days ago and the cactus seems fine. I'm moving the cactus so it gets like extra sunlight as, as my way of apologising to it. So tell me about how this anxiety normally manifests itself. I mean, you talked about sort of worrying about being prepared in just normal circumstances. I mean, how do you experience it on a day-to-day basis? Anxiety sufferers tend to suffer from what's called what-if worries. So I can't get my wife on the phone. What if she's dead? And you know that it's irrational if it starts with a what-if. Not that all what-if worries are irrational, but in general, an anxiety disorder manifests itself when your worries begin with what-if. So I get lots of what-if worries. I also quite recently developed a new kind of anxiety called scrupulosity. It's an excessive concern about behaving in an ethical manner. You tie yourself up in knots about doing the right thing ethically. What does that mean? I mean, what, what sort of what are the issues that you worry about being ethical over? Oh, I mean, as a, specifically, I suppose, or mainly as a journalist, you want to make sure that your stories are ethical, that you're treating everybody in the right way, while still being a proper journalist. You know, journalists, we have a great responsibility over the people who we're chronicling, and you've got to be ethical. What point does it tip over into a problem? Well, I think with all disorders, when it impacts the quality of your life. I used to panic a lot about not being able to get my wife on the phone. I, I would, that would really trigger my anxiety and I'd catastrophize. I'd be in, like, Washington, D.C., desperately trying to reach her on the phone and no answer and the mental picture would be that she was upstairs she heard the phone ringing she tripped on the stairs as she was going for the phone broke her neck dead at the bottom of the stairs while my son who at the time was about two 
was just reaching for the flax of a just-boiled kettle. So that was the mental picture that, that would haunt me when I couldn't get my wife on the phone. That's so many nightmares rolled into one. Well, actually, there's something worse I can tell you about that particular night. It, that's yeah. a particularly memorable anxiety night for me because I was in Washington, D.C., working on a story that ended up being in my book then. And this was kind of pre-cell phone. So I phoned and phoned and phoned. And the next morning, my telephone bill from the hotel that night came to $900. So that was the numerical value of that particular anxiety. Oh, my God. It's funny, though. I never thought of it as a disorder until just maybe several years ago. I just thought this is just the way we live our lives. John has tried a number of techniques to overcome his anxiety. He once even turned to a famous hypnotist. I had like an hour with Paul McKenna, so I thought I could interview him or I could get him to cure me of my anxieties. You know, and he charges quite a lot, so he cured me for free. Paul McKenna is an especially good hypnotist, right? It's something yeah. to do with the, with the tenor of his voice, I think. So it worked for me in that circumstance, yeah. But I still get it if I can't get my son on the phone, so maybe I should have been broader <laughs> with Paul McKenna. Maybe I should have said, like, can you fix, fix all my anxieties? But I just asked him to focus on that one. A couple of years later, I was at a hotel in uh, Los Angeles and I walked into the toilet and he was in there and I said, Paul, you know, remember how you hypnotised me and, you know, to get rid of my anxieties about my wife um, being dead if I can't get her on the phone? And he said yes. And I said, well, you know, they, they went, she, it worked. And he, wow. and he ran over to me in the toilet and hugged me. He was so pleased <laughs> that, that it worked. John found out about coronavirus like most of us, through the news and social media, where he shared how he was feeling. I tweeted, I wonder if some other fellow long-term sufferers also feel weirdly calm. My theory is that we rehearse catastrophic what-if situations in our heads so often when a real crisis happens, we're quite good at it. So I tweeted that. And it's had like 17 thousand likes and a thousand wow. comments and of the thousand comments I'd say about 10 are your typical Twitter linguistic dismissals like you know uh-uh nope and all those kind of really annoying things <laughs> that people say on Twitter when they want to give you a little slap and the other 990 were all like oh my god that's so true I hadn't found a way to put it into words before. Hi, John. I'm a psychotherapist and I recognise this calmness of anxiety sufferers in the face of this virus. Particularly notice this in people with OCD. I haven't been able to articulate this yet, but it's exactly what I've been feeling in the midst of all of this. That honestly explains why I've been so calm and unbothered by it all while my friends are literally freaking out. Honestly, this disease isn't a patch on what's been going through my head for the last 20 years. I've never felt more seen. Uh, <laughs> it's all happening. This is what you've trained for. 
There's a lot along the lines of this is yes, our day has come. This is, <laughs> this is our time to shine. And that's true. Like everything we've been forced to do are things that we just do naturally. You know, we suddenly not wanting to go to parties is considered like heroic in these times. <laughs> like self-isolating is, is heroic. Not wanting to shake hands with people is suddenly like, you know, heroic. And, you know, being prepared for catastrophe is suddenly heroic. Yeah, I think it feels like finally... Us anxiety sufferers have a Darwinian advantage. Does it feel like you've just been ahead of the curve? Yeah, 25 years ahead of the curve. Uh, (laughs) This is, uh, let's read you a couple of others if you like. So much this, I catastrophize so hard 98% of the time when an actual crisis happens, I'm calm as and very focused. Let me see what else. I've never heard anything more relatable... Oh, this is interesting. In his book, Wish I Could Be There, Notes from a Phobic Life, Alan Sean notes that the anxiety response compounds itself in the absence of actual threat, but is sated by real crises. The brain, given something real to focus on, puts aside, quote-unquote, selfish worries. That's interesting that they wrote selfish worries. Yeah, what do you make of that? Well, you know, most mental disorders and mental illnesses have, a, have an element of self-absorption to them, right? I mean, when people have panic attacks, they become very self-absorbed because it's, it's like a survival, you know, it's, it's all about yourself, So I don't think it's, like, shameful that some mental illnesses and disorders are are about self-absorption. Because, you know, having a panic attack, for instance, is the equivalent of hanging on to a cliff by your fingers. That's what it feels like. So, of course, you're going to be focusing on yourself. But I wouldn't say it's all selfish worries. You know, I talked earlier about scrupulosity. That's, That's not a selfish worry. That's a worry about hurting other people. I often think of anxiety disorders as being like a disease of moral goodness, because they're quite often about fears of doing the wrong thing, saying the wrong thing, being somehow incapable of dealing with a social situation for instance so I think a lot of it certainly not entirely true but I think a lot of anxiety disorders are about morality you want to be a moral person you want to do the right thing that's why people with Tourette's yell out offensive things because they're so scared that they might yell out something offensive and that's what their mind's trying to stop yeah that's fascinating I don't think I agree with the word selfish I, I, I understand what they're saying but I don't think that's that's true And you've talked a bit about insomnia and a bit about panic attacks. I mean, what's the sort of full spectrum of, you know, behaviour that you've experienced as a result of your anxiety? I mean, in you know, in positive ways too. Anxiety, you know, I've had a successful writing career, including, by the way, going to some very dangerous places. You know, I've been to like Ku Klux Klan compounds and I've been, uh, I've spent a lot of time with Nazis, a lot um, and um, yeah, I've done a, I've, I've done a bunch of dangerous things in in my life. My anxiety hasn't stopped me from doing any of that. So interesting. When you're going through one of those dangerous scenarios, do you feel calmer than normal or as anxious? I think we anxiety sufferers, and this is you know the thousand comments I had as a result of that tweet, kind of bear this out. We deal with dangerous situations by and large better 
than non-anxious people do because we've rehearsed it so much in our heads, maybe. But a real calm takes over when you're in a genuinely risky situation. That I think that's common for not every anxiety sufferer, but a lot of anxiety sufferers. You know, it's a funny thing. Is it that we've rehearsed catastrophic situations in our head so often that we spring into action and can, you know, feel capable when a real risky situation occurs? That, 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 I'm sure that's part of it, yeah. And is a, a global pandemic something that you'd rehearsed? No, never thought about a global pandemic And at what point did you decide on the self-isolation? I suppose I said like three days. I've actually been, I suppose, self-isolating pretty much for a couple of weeks now. But that really is no big change to my regular life. (laughs) I'm I'm a writer, so, you know, we do spend most of our time alone. I cancelled a couple of trips. I was supposed to go to Oklahoma this weekend and I've just cancelled that. And I was supposed to go to Australia in two weeks and I've had to cancel that. But... I guess, you know, moving into self-isolation as a way of being is not that profound for an introvert. We pretty much do it all anyway. So none of this has been a massive shock? No, not, not, and I think that's the point, not to us, not to, not not to us introverted (laughs) anxiety sufferers. This has not come as a massive shock. This is our time. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60. For most of us, the thought of self-isolation is pretty bleak. The World Health Organization has even released a set of guidelines on the mental health impact. But how will we cope when we have no physical connection to the outside world? Obviously, being isolated can be, you know, awful. And even someone like me who self-isolates, you know, frequently, sometimes it gets to you, it overwhelms you. Because I think this is going to last, I mean, obviously, who knows, but I think this will probably last a couple of months. And I think people will get depressed, feeling, you know, too isolated. We're social creatures, even as introverts, uh, you know, need some kind of socialisation. So I'd be lying if I said this was going to be easy for everyone. I was just saying to my wife this morning, like, thank God for the internet I mean it's going to keep us connected I I hate Twitter um, because of the impact it's had on you know the negative impacts that it's had on society the way that it reduces people to caricatures of themselves and so on and the way that 
people get destroyed on there. But actually, my, my prediction is that Twitter is going to be a really good place to be for the next couple of months. Really? You think people's attitudes are changing? Well, more just more to do with connection, like the upsides of Twitter, being connected with people, just having a funny dialogue with strangers on Twitter can be very good, If you, I think, if you're feeling too isolated. There is sort of a, an anxiety in isolation, too. Yeah, like being isolated in a way that you don't want to be is, is bleak. It's like staring into the abyss. So I would say chat away to people on social media. I think, I think that's, that can be very healing. I think Twitter can possibly, if people chill the hell out and stop the bad things that we do on Twitter, it could actually be a wonderful place to be over the next couple of months. It can, it can really help us. Is there almost a camaraderie amongst people who've had anxiety for longer than the rest of the world? Is this sort of bringing, is Twitter bringing you all together? Yeah, I think so. And I think part of the reason for that is if your anxiety makes you feel ashamed, then what is the cure for shame? It's empathy. And so the more yeah. you empathise with other people and they do with you, the better it is. I mean, one really positive development, I'd say, in mental health over the past few years is people are much more willing to talk about it. It's just much more normal. Most people have got something going on. And that that's a, it's very psychologically positive to know that, for people to, to share their symptoms and laugh about it and empathise and so on, uh, is, is wonderful. The cure for shame is empathy. Do you think it'll make the world more sympathetic to people who suffer from anxiety without all of that? Will there be a greater empathy there as well? You know, a couple of people tweeted me that in response to the thing that I wrote. They felt good because everybody else has to experience what they've been feeling for the last 25 years. They finally understand. Yeah, they feel people feel seen. And in fact, a few people have said to me, like, I didn't understand anxiety until I read that tweet of yours. Somebody said to me, oh, my God, that tweet of yours has finally made me see whether I should get an anxiety diagnosis myself. Somebody wrote me. Really? Yeah. So I think there's going to be a rise in anxiety amongst people who don't usually experience anxiety. But I think some people who suffer from anxiety will see a decline in their anxiety levels during this process. It's certainly true of, of me. A lot of people are blaming, you know, the political response to coronavirus, the media response to coronavirus for sort of the rising level of tension. Can you see it impacting people? I mean, probably. I mean, it's certainly politicians on, on both sides of the Atlantic have made mistakes. So I think when all this is over, there's going to be a real reckoning when it comes to the mistakes that were made. But right now, I think the main thing is that everybody's in this together. If we can't trust our politicians to give us the right advice, then we have to figure out ourselves what the right thing to do is. And the right thing to do is to self-isolate, practice social distancing, be responsible and mindful. You know, just buy one bottle of hand sanitizer, not 17,000 bottles like that man in Tennessee. This should be a time for people to come together and work together to get beyond this.
It was really depressing seeing the bars and restaurants of Brooklyn full up until last Friday night. It was depressing to see that because it was, you know, people obviously weren't heeding, heeding the warnings and were quite possibly giving it to each other, you know, young kids on a night out. One thing that's kind of interesting in all of this is that obviously we're listening to the experts, but we're not really listening to the politicians. And it's a good lesson in, in figuring things out for yourself. It's really interesting. You're self-isolating in New York at the moment. Part of government policy here about not self-isolating just yet or waiting until a later stage is all based on an assumption that there's something intrinsic to the British character, I suppose, which means that we're just much less likely to be able to stay indoors and self-isolate for as long as other places have. What do you make of that? I'm no trained virologist, uh, no matter what anyone says. <laughs> I don't know where things are in Britain right now, though, because there was talk about herd immunity being something yeah. to be aspired towards. I mean, that's not being discussed here in America. I mean, you know, time will show who was right and who was wrong. For somebody who's spent quite a lot of time worrying about, for example, where, you know, if your wife's okay, is there something quite reassuring about being in self-isolation and knowing exactly where she is in relation to you? Or... I don't know where she's right now. She's out with the dogs. I suppose there's a possibility that some infected person who thinks they can only get through this crisis by stealing somebody else's dog might attack her. But that doesn't seem likely, so I think, um, I think she's going to be OK. <laughs> but that is the kind of thing. I tell you, at my worst, that's the kind of place that my mind will go to. I remember one time I was picking my son up from primary school in Islington when he was about four and the doors didn't open. And I swear to God, within two minutes, I had decided that the reason why I couldn't see any children at this school was because there'd been a, a gas attack by terrorists. And <laughs> kids. I mean, that is extreme. Yeah, right. Um, you know, welcome to the world of catastrophizing. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, the author John Ronson. The producer was Ben Mitchell. The executive producer is Leo Hornack. The deputy executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Nicholas Rolfast. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and more. See you tomorrow.